This is the Physical Activity Researcher Podcast, a podcast for researchers of sedentary behavior, physical activity, and sports. Join for a relaxed dialogue about research design, practicalities, and, well, anything related to research. Learn from your fellow researchers useful and relevant information that does not fit into formal content and limited space of scientific publications. And here is your host, researcher and entrepreneur, Ollie Tikkanen. Welcome, everyone. Before introducing guest of today's episode, I would like to know just a few things. Physical Activity Researcher Podcast is committed to promoting equality and diversity in all its activities, including selection of guests. We have limited resources to scout all great researchers from different groups of people, so if you know someone who should be as a guest in the podcast, please ask this individual to contact us directly. As another thing, I would like to ask for your help. Being able to deliver this podcast to you, my audience, is based on how many people find, start to listen and follow this podcast. So I would really appreciate little help promoting this podcast. You can do this by subscribing, following the podcast on Twitter, retweeting tweets sometimes, and maybe even giving a good rating if you liked an episode. And now... It is time for the actual show and introduction of our great guest of today's episode. She holds a master's degree in public health and PhD in clinical psychology. She's working as associate investigator at Kaiser Permanente Washington Health Research Institute. She's also affiliate associate professor in the Department of Health Services at the University of Washington School of Public Health. She serves as a co-chair of Physical Activity Special Interest Group at the Society of Behavioral Medicine. She has conducted extensive research into measuring and intervening on physical activity and sedentary time. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome our guest, Dr. Dori Rosenberg. Welcome, Dori. Thanks so much for having me, Ollie. Now it's it's fully my pleasure that you can take part in this podcast. So I assume you are working from home now. How how is everything going in Seattle? It's going pretty well. I'm I'm lucky, you know, that that I do research and that I can work remotely. I don't have a clinical psychology practice anymore and so um, I don't have to worry about converting patients to telemedicine, which is what a lot of my colleagues are doing. Um, it's pretty easy to to work remotely nowadays doing research, but you know it's definitely having an impact on my uh, studies that are going on right now. So that's been really interesting to figure out how to handle what's happening, and I certainly feel for our research participants who are mostly high risk, and so. They're stuck in their homes, uh, and you know I'm really curious to to learn more about how they're coping with all of this. Yeah. So, what kind of project do you have have ongoing at the moment? We have a couple of of big studies happening right now. So, one is a trial where 
we are doing a randomized controlled trial of sedentary behavior reduction in older adults with obesity. And so it's a high risk group in multiple ways. They're over age 60. They have many health conditions. And so we've had to figure out how to both keep people engaged in an intervention to reduce sedentary behavior and increase physical activity, even though their daily life is really impacted by the coronavirus pandemic. And we're having to figure out how to collect data, mostly remotely. And so uh, that has been an interesting process. We aren't quite geared up to do remote assessments, but right now we have submitted IRB modifications so that we can do all of our assessments remotely. And what we're having to do, our primary outcomes are sedentary behavior measured by the ActivePal device. So, you know, it's not a big deal to send those out to people. But our other outcomes are blood pressure, and we have some cardiometabolic biomarkers like HbA1c. And so we are having to send all of our participants a blood pressure monitor. That is one change that we're making so that we can collect blood pressure. But we won't be able to collect the blood work that we need for the other biomarkers. And We also do tests of physical function since this is an older adult population and we won't be able to capture those tasks. Uh, One of those tasks, we've figured out a way to to do it by telephone, which we hope will work. But the other tasks that, that we have, we don't think we can collect remotely. So that's, that's one study We're we're also, I should add with that study, adding some items just to collect how our participants are doing, get capture levels of anxiety and stress, and mm-hmm. ask them questions about how the pandemic has affected their behaviors, like sedentary behavior, physical activity, and sleep. And we're hoping mm-hmm. to do some interviews with these participants to also understand qualitatively what, what life has been like for them. So that's one study. And then the other large study we have going on is a cohort study of adults over age 65. And we typically enroll participants into this study and follow them with an assessment every two years. And the study is set up to look at dementia outcomes. So we enroll healthy, cognitively healthy older adults randomly selected from our healthcare system. And we follow them until they get dementia. And and we also collect other outcomes, both from their electronic health records and our biennial assessments. And in 2016, we added ActivePal and Actigraph assessments into the cohort. So I've been leading that sub-study. And, uh, and this pandemic obviously is, is affecting what our folks in this cohort study are able to do. And so we're really excited to get back out into the field and start collecting assessments remotely. And so we're in process of figuring out a questionnaire that we'll send out to understand the impacts of COVID. And then we're also hoping that we'll be able to send devices out to people remotely and get some data on what's happening naturalistically with their sedentary behavior 
and physical activity as well as sleep and and other emotional health and other potential outcomes. So it's affecting our studies a lot and it's kept me really busy personally uh, trying to figure out how to adapt everything so that we can still keep going and I'm really optimistic about that. Um, But it's definitely been a very interesting time in research. Yeah, it sounds like quite challenging. How how big is your your trial, the RCT trial? We're enrolling 284 older adults over the next year or so. And so we're really we started recruiting about a year and a half ago, so we're really like right in the middle of recruitment. So it's definitely not ideal. Uh I don't I can't quite wrap my head around how this will affect our data but I think it will be really interesting to understand how how this epidemic has impacted people and we're actually following this is uh one of the largest and longest sedentary behavior reduction trials in an older adult population so we actually are following people for 12 months uh so mm-hmm. they get an active intervention for the first six months and we have a sedentary behavior reduction intervention arm compared to a healthy, living-focused con- attention control group. So we have a really nice control condition that we think will keep people engaged. So they get their interventions for six months, and then we're actually re-randomizing the arm that gets the sedentary behavior reduction intervention, and they receive either no further contact or some additional contacts over months six through 12. And then we get outcome assessments on everybody at 12 months. So it's a really nice design. I, I think we're we're nicely set up to answer some questions around the long-term health effects of sedentary behavior reduction in a high-risk population. And also to look at how these behavior changes maintain for a longer period of time we don't really understand whether sedentary behavior reduction promotes maintenance of that behavior once active intervention has ended. And we know from our from our work in physical activity that in older adults, their behavior tends to revert towards baseline after the active intervention ends. So we're really curious about whether sedentary behavior reduction adaptations that people make are more sustainable over the long term. So we're collecting some really interesting data that I'm really excited about. And at the same time, you know, we're all a little bit bummed about what's happening. Um, you know, both the impacts it's having on broader society and and also we're not quite sure what will happen at the end of the day when people will be able to get back out in their environments and work again and everything. So it's quite an interesting time. And I'm, you know, I'm also really curious for me personally, I think I'm probably more sedentary working from home, but I'm also doing a lot more physical activity than I was before. Uh, it's it's kind of my savior right now. So I'm making sure to really make it the highlight of my day. So I don't know, I think it will be really interesting to understand how this is affecting older adults. Mm. And and have you already done the baseline measurement or you are just starting the baseline? 
We've been collecting baseline data for a little over a year, almost a year and a half now. We have 100 people enrolled in this study. So we've collected baseline assessments on 100 people. And uh, earlier I said we're about halfway done with recruitment, but because of the pause we've had to take due to coronavirus, we're actually more like a third of our way through recruitment. And so we've got a lot of people that are still in the study. We've only got a handful of people that have finished the 12-month assessment. So we're really in the thick of things. And so the pandemic is not ideal timing, certainly, for our study. Um, and at the same time, I'm, I'm hopeful that the changes people are making in their sedentary behavior are uh, that people are able to sustain them right now. We are hearing qualitatively from our health coaches that work with people that people are really needing a behavior change intervention right now. You know, they're feeling everything that's going on is taking a toll on them physically and, and emotionally. And they're very excited about working on their sitting time. It's something that they can control right now. You know, I think yeah. that one way we can all cope is it's it's a mantra that I tell people, control what you can, accept what you can't. And so we're really working with people on, you know, what can you control? And things like behaviors are fantastic. We We can control our sedentary behavior right now, even during a pandemic. And we can control our home environment. Um, and we we can work on all of those things to help us feel a little bit better about what's happening. And the fact that, you know, we don't ultimately have direct control over what happens with the with broader society and the pandemic. This podcast is sponsored by Fibian, a research device that has been shown to be valid in tracking sitting, standing, physical activity and energy expenditure. Furthermore, Fibian has been shown to be valid categorizing physical activity into light, moderate and vigorous intensity. In addition to scientific accuracy, Fibian provides automatically produced and easy to understand reports for research participants. Get scientific validation and learn more about Fibian at fibian.com/research. And so people can now actually control it's easier and there's probably less social norms right. uh, uh, disturbing the behavior change. I, I had a, I recorded an episode with Dr. Amanda Rebar and, and she was thinking that maybe it's, even though it's, it's a good opportunity in a way that people have the control, but the life might be too stressful now to actually have the energy to do a behavior change. Do you think it is a too difficult situation for people to change or do you think it's the it's the good moment to change their behavior? Yeah, yeah you know, I, I think that is really true probably for some people. I, I don't think we know quite yet how it's affecting everyone. And, and certainly I think some of the studies I'm doing can help answer that question. What what we're sensing um, from our health coaches is that there are two different kinds of people. Some people are are really kind of thriving and really focusing on those things that they can control and doing quite well, and other people are really struggling. And the behavior changes are much harder um, 
And, and so I think there's probably different groups of people, you know, and then there's people in the middle who are both struggling and trying to do what they can. And so I, I think everybody is responding quite differently to what's happening and everybody has a different setup at home. Um, many of our older adults are living alone and I think that's really hard on them right now. And many are living with others and that's probably quite helpful right now. And so there's a lot of different factors around how people are coping. And one thing that we're also learning is that our health coaches are playing a vital role right now. And I'm so happy that we went with a health coaching intervention, given what's happening, because uh, the health coaches are really helping serve as a connection point for people. And so people are able to talk to their coach. And right now, the lines are bleeding a little bit, I would say, into just being somebody there that they can talk to because many of our participants are socially isolated. And so it's it's actually been quite helpful for them to talk to someone. And the health coaches are able to get into their behavioral goals and to, to focus still on the goals of the study while also trying to support people. And we're providing extra resources to all of our participants around how to cope right now and providing different strategies and websites and smartphone apps they can use to support themselves. And so we're able to actually do quite a lot within the context of our study. And so actually, it's it's funny, when uh, the pandemic first happened, I was feeling really, really helpless. I was, you know, I was questioning, why am I not, I need to do coronavirus research right now and be a epidemiologist, not try to change people's behavior right now. But then I, it kind of dawned on me that behaviors are something people can control right now. And, and helping people stay healthy right now physically is really, really important. And so it, it gives me new connection to my research. And I'm, I'm really excited that we can be there to support our participants. And we're trying to give them a little bit of extra support right now, I would say, to help them cope. Mm. No, I, I fully agree that I think it's very, very important to keep people active, to enable behavior change. And, and it's quite likely that quite many people will get the coronavirus at some point and probably being in a good fitness helps them to survive it. So I think it's, it's really important. Uh, how, how is the situation now in Seattle? You have your participants in Seattle, I assume. Is it, is it locked down? Can the participants go out to exercise freely and can they go like for small walks outside or is it restricted? Yeah. So right now we're under a stay at home order. So everyone should stay at home and really try to minimize going out and particularly um, reducing, you know, if you have to go to the grocery store, that's fine, but really try to make a concerted effort to do a lot of shopping at once so that you don't have to go out too frequently. But we are still allowed to walk outside both on neighborhood streets and in parks, although parks are closed to parking. So they're trying to discourage 
people, I think, from from driving to parks. Um, although I live near a large park and that it's definitely not stopping people there, still driving in and parking on side streets to use the park. So we are allowed to walk in the parks, run in the parks. Some parks don't allow cycling right now. And so we're encouraged. Our parks have these like large signs everywhere that say maintain six feet of distance, keep moving, don't don't stop, don't block pathways, don't congregate. And so they're trying to encourage people to social distance. And then masks are highly encouraged when we're outdoors, although they're not required at least yet. And mm-hmm. so it's good in the sense that, you know, Seattle is, we're, we're very lucky. It's a great walking city. We have a lot of beautiful nature right at our doorsteps. There are multiple lakes, mountains, lots of parks, a lot of trees. It's a very beautiful city. And so we are still able to encourage people to get outdoors, even if it's, you know, going for a walk around the block or something really small. But we're working hard. Our coaches are working hard to encourage people to still do those things. We know that it cheers people up to see nature, to see their neighbors, even from a distance. So, uh, you know, and actually, uh, we've had a lot of reports of people meeting their neighbors. Seattle is a little bit of a, uh, there's this famous phrase called the Seattle freeze, which just means Seattle lights are a little bit... um, to themselves and not the most friendly outgoing people or so we're known as. And so a lot of our participants are reporting that they've met neighbors for the first time, but, you know, kept social distancing. And so in some ways, uh, and I think that in the sense that we're all in this together, in some ways, people are, are feeling very connected. And yet in other ways in our daily life, people are quite disconnected. So We've, we are trying to add some items to our surveys around social isolation. And luckily mm-hmm. in our uh, aging cohort study, which is, by the way, called the Adult Changes in Thought or ACT study. And the, the lead of that study is Dr. Eric Larson and Dr. Paul Crane. And uh, in that study, we actually have measures of isolation we've been collecting on people for over 25 years. This is a very old, ongoing study. And so we'll be able to look at the the social isolation levels before and after the pandemic, which I think will be quite interesting. Yeah, definitely interesting. And how is the how is the intervention? What kind of actions you have in for the intervention group? Sure. So Our intervention is really based on a series of pilot studies that we did. And the most recent one was a a pilot randomized control trial of 60 older adults. They were randomized to get sitting reduction or or a control group over three months. And that study was actually just accepted for publication at the Journal of Physical Activity and Aging. And in that study... Um, which built on a couple of prior studies where we did a lot of qualitative work with older adults to really understand what their sedentary behavior was like and what kinds of tools they felt they needed to help them change that behavior. So I like to think that the 
final intervention we ended up with for my larger trial is really patient-centered. And what we have found works is a combination of a couple of different things. So one of the key components has been health coaching. So across all of our prior studies, participants have really loved working with a health coach. And so we had considered going to a purely electronic study design so that we could um, make this a little more scalable. But people really love the health coaching. And so we, we weren't going to get rid of that in our larger trial where we're really trying to reduce their sedentary behavior so we can look at health changes. So the health coaching really centers around the use of three different strategies that strategies to remind the older adults to take breaks from sitting and to do periods of standing. And so, and this is, this really stems from our early work where we found the biggest barrier to engaging in the intervention was that people forget, you know, we all get very caught up in what we're doing and we get busy and we're not thinking about the fact that we've been sitting for two hours. Uh, and so and even in our case, we've been, well, I've been sitting for the past 30 minutes that we've been talking and I'm completely in, immersed in our conversation and it hasn't even dawned on me. So we, we get people to really figure out what reminder strategies work for them. And these are the three reminder strategies. So the first one is called inner reminders. And we teach people to become more mindful of how their body feels when they're sitting and to really pay attention to internal cues that might tell them, oh, you know, it's time to change position or maybe even get up. And so we try to get people to pay attention to things like pain and stiffness, muscle cramping, and, and those kinds of things. And, and so those are the inner reminders. And then we get people using outward reminders. And these are things that they can use in their home environment or work environment, or wherever they are, as external cues and prompts to remind them. And the main tools that we provide for people there are a band that, that goes off every 15 minutes when they're inactive to remind them to move. And you know, a lot of bands out there have this feature called inact an inactivity alert, where it alerts people usually once an hour to take a break and move around like Fitbit encourages you to take 250 steps to move around. We wanted something that went off more frequently because some of the acute lab studies have really shown that people need to break up their sitting very regularly, like every 15 to 30 minutes. And mm. so a lot of the commercially available devices didn't work for us. So we've We've kind of gone to a couple different devices we found that do allow, allow us to set a prompt to go off every 15 minutes. And we do that not because we think people will get up every 15 minutes, but that at least it's reminding them to think about whether they could take a break from sitting and move around a little bit. And, and then the other tool under outward reminders that we've now been giving people only in the current study. We didn't do this before because we didn't find a great option that was low cost. Now we've found a standing desk we can give people. That's just a tabletop mm -hmm. desk that they can put on any surface in their home, at work, wherever they feel like 
they might want to spend a little bit of time standing. And so what we're finding, we haven't tested that in our prior studies, but we're finding that people love having that tool. And we get people to do little bouts of standing. Now, we don't encourage them to stand for so long that it hurts their body. A lot of our participants have low back pain or other types of pain. But they really love having a place where, you know, they can stand and eat or read or use their laptop. And so that's been a great outward reminder that we think will help our our current study have an even larger effect on behavior. And then we also encourage them to think of other outward reminders in their home. So we have one session where we walk them through a home environment audit. And they think of all of the spaces that they use in their house and how they could make changes to promote breaks from sitting or standing or moving. And so they could do little things like um, we give them little cue cards that they can put in places that they sit. Um, We get them to think about their TV time and whether they could take breaks during commercials. So all of those kinds of strategies fall under outward reminders. And then our final type of reminder is called a habit reminder. And these are using habits that you already do to add on some standing time or moving time. So some examples of this are, you know, every time I drink my morning coffee, I stand for the first half. Every time I read a section of the newspaper, I stand. So these are behaviors you do already. Some people use, you know, when they brush their teeth, they that's a cue for them to take a lap around the house. Um, people really apply these habit reminders in all types of ways. And we found in the study that's coming out in the Journal of Aging and Physical Activity, we really found that that people love these habit reminders. Um, and so We get people using all three of these strategies ideally and really figuring out the tools that work best for them. So for example, we've found for some people that that wrist-worn device that prompts breaks from sitting is really key, but other people don't love it so much, you know, and so they don't have to use it, but it's available to them if, if they do find it helpful. So those are kind of the key strategies. And then We also give people feedback on their sitting behavior from from the active pal. And so they wear the active pal a couple of times throughout the study. They love getting the feedback from the active pal. Um, It's at baseline. um, It's very eye-opening. People are shocked at how much time they spend sitting. And because we're focusing on older adults with obesity, they have a lot of health conditions our baseline standing time is really high, um, around 10 hours per day. And physical activity is quite low. It's usually, you know, five to 6,000 steps a day, as an example. And so we're getting, we're reaching a very sedentary and highly inactive population. And so the, the, in, the those are kind of the core components of, of the intervention. And, uh, And they were really built, I would just say, on all of our prior research. And I'll just add one other thing, which is that we also did this really interesting pilot study where we wanted to specifically test 
whether the inactivity alert features of risk-worn devices are effective. And so we did a single case design experiment where we we had an it was an ABA design. And so we gave people an active pelt aware for 25 days. And then for a random period of time, they just wore the active pal. And then they were at a random point in time for the B period, the intervention period, they received a band in the mail that was set to go off every 15 minutes. And they were simply instructed to get up and move around for one to two minutes every time it went off. And then at a random period of time, they actually sent the device back they stopped wearing it and we just monitored their sitting time and their breaks from sitting. So our primary outcome was whether they indeed took more breaks from sitting when they had the band. And it was really interesting. We found they did increase their breaks from sitting, but by a very modest amount, it was on the order of like six breaks per day. So it wasn't like a huge effect on breaks, but it did help and it was a significant effect. So we um, have kept the band in the study, and I think uh, you know it's not it's not as simple. You know, when I was first starting this work, we thought this is going to be a simple behavior change. You know, I've been doing this work for a long time. So ten years ago, when we were designing the first pilot study, we thought maybe if we just give people a band, you know, that's enough. And uh, it turns out sedentary behavior reduction is a much more complicated behavior change than I think anybody thought it would be. And and uh, so it's been fun to kind of see how our intervention has evolved. Uh, mm-hmm. But those, to answer your questions, those are the key components. This podcast is sponsored by Fibian. Fibian is an accurate sitting and physical activity tracking device and analysis platform. It is a great tool for projects that aim for behavior change in sedentary behavior and incidental physical activity. Fibian provides easy-to-understand PDF and web browser reports for participants. Other features include comparisons to recommendations, linking results to health risks, achievement cards, and interactive goal-setting tool. In addition, Fibian provides an API that allows for easy integration to other systems and applications. Learn more about Fibian at fibian.com research. Fibian, from researchers to researchers. Yeah, so basically you have reminders, strategies, and then feedback. And you find that the reminder strategies are the most important as people were forgetting. Did I understood it correctly? Yes, yes. People really, they think that they'll remember. You know, they'd always tell us at the beginning of the study, oh, this is going to be no big deal. I I got this. I'm going to do this. Um, And then they invariably, you know, we show them their feedback chart and, and it's surprising to them because we do forget. And so they they do learn very quickly that they need these strategies for helping them change the behavior and you know the other key part i think is the health coaching and so i think the my current big trial will be really interesting because we have a an attention control group because we think the health coaching is pretty potent and you know it'll be quite interesting to see 
how, you know, whether there are differences over time in the behavior, because I do think the coaching also has some magic to it that really helps people and people are really liking our control intervention. And, and so uh, it'll be quite a interesting study, I think, to see the outcomes and whether, you know, whether there are differences between the groups and, and whether the reductions in sedentary behavior we're expecting based on our pilot work you know, at least an hour per day reduction in sitting time and a reduction in prolonged sitting bouts. And so, um, you know, if we do see that and, you know, does that have health benefits in this older population that has a lot of chronic health conditions? So I, I think it'll be, the results will be quite interesting. Mm. And so you expecting that you could reduce the sitting time by one hour and that people would be having more breaks and then you measuring blood pressure and HB1AC as uh, outcome measures? Correct. So our primary outcomes are behavioral outcomes and blood pressure. So the the NIH Institute that funded this work is the National Heart, Lung and Blood Institute. So they're focused on heart health outcomes. And so we uh, selected blood pressure based on our pilot work where we did see some reductions in blood pressure. And we had in our pilot randomized control trial, we had about an hour per day reduction in sitting over three months. So we're, we're hoping that, that we attain at least the one hour per day and that maybe because the intervention is longer, we'll get an even larger effect on behavior. And so, uh, but yes, those are the primary outcomes. And then the secondary outcome is HbA1c and weight and waist circumference. And so those are going to be a little bit harder to collect remotely. You know, we're anticipating that we won't be able to see older adults in the clinic for quite some time since they're a high risk group. And so unfortunately, we'll probably have at the end of the day a, a, a large part of our sample that doesn't have those biometric outcomes, but at least we'll be able to get blood pressure and our behavioral outcomes and have, you know, a large enough study to really determine whether sitting reductions have an impact on those health outcomes. Mm. So quite quite a bit of challenges due to this situation. So how do you do yes. with Active pal, how are the people attaching it by themselves? Are they charging and initializing the device? So how do you do all the practicalities? Yeah, that's a great question. So we, uh, what we do is we typically do send the active pal in advance of their in-person visit. So one of the considerations for us is that. Seattle has some of the worst traffic in the country and our population that's older does not feel very comfortable having to drive into downtown Seattle where we're located. And so we try to minimize the number of times they have to come to our research clinic because they it's very hard for them. And so what we do in our general procedures, not with COVID going on, is we mail the ActiPal in advance 
which is something we've tested in some of our pilot studies. We tested whether it worked for us to send an octopel and have people attach it to themselves. Um, and so we charge the device, we send it out to them all ready to go. And we package the device in um, plastic using a heat sealer, which is an approach we, we stole from Seb Chaston uh, in Glasgow. He told us about that approach and it, it keeps the device nice and clean and waterproofs it. And then we send them some tagaderm tape that's really easy. Um, it comes um, packaged so that it has what's called a window around it. So it's a it's a hard sheet that they put on uh, over the octopel on their thigh to secure it, and it's pretty easy to use, and isn't very difficult to pull the tabs off of. Some tape is a little bit harder for older adults to use. So we've tested all of that in our preliminary studies and pilot work. And it worked pretty well. Uh, it worked very well, actually. And then we had people wear the Actipal into their research clinic appointment where we do their baseline assessments. And so what we're going to do is just have them mail it back to us since now we won't be able to see them for some time in our clinic. And we think that approach will be okay. You know, we're not anticipating the biggest challenge is actually the mailing. Uh, you know, mail mail um, at my office, it, it has to go through a few different levels to get to us. And right now, our mail service is in our building is a little bit impacted by the coronavirus because of, you know, they're keeping less staff in the office. So it's more the problem of getting the devices through the mail than that we're concerned that the participants can't handle it on their own. But we give them really clear instructions for how to apply it. And they can call us at any time if they have problems. We also call them proactively and check to make sure that they've got it on and that it's going fine. Uh, so it's worked really well. So we're pretty confident we can make um, that procedure remote without a lot of trouble. Mm, that's that's good to hear. I think it's sometimes quite challenging. So have have they actually worn the device before that they know how to attach, or do you have a video which is showing it, or how how do you do the guiding? No, yeah, none of that. Actually, they have not ever. You know, they get a package in the mail that has the device, and then really clear instructions with a lot of pictures. Um, but we didn't want to make them have to click on a video link. Um, again, because we're working with an older population, we didn't think everybody would be comfortable with that. So we send them really clear pictures for how to wear it. And we have um, like a very clear marking on the device that that indicates what position to wear it in. And it's worked really well. We're getting good data and don't think we have um, that it's that difficult for people to, to put on themselves. Mm, that's that's good to hear. And how, yeah. how does it go? You, you are charging the device and then the shipping takes or the mail takes some time and then they are wearing it. How is the battery life and how long measurement are you are you doing? So we have, um, we're using the ActiPal 3, which is a little bit older. So the, the battery lasts at least 14 days. Uh, and so when we put the device in the mail, it usually takes, you know, maybe three days to get to them. And then, um, and we, we have the device start 
um, in a couple of days. And so it preserves the battery life. And then we give them wear logs so that we're tracking or not a wear log, more of a sleep log. So we have people wear the device 24 hours a day for seven days. And then we have them uh, make uh, to keep a log of when they go to sleep and when they get up um, so that we can remove that time. And on the wear log, we actually pre-print the dates, the exact dates that they should be wearing the device, but which are the seven days before their in-person baseline assessment or six-month assessment. And so they know exactly what day to put it on, and it's worked really well. Now that we'll be doing our assessments remotely, um, we'll probably just have to pick dates to put on the wear log that are out, you know, a couple of days so that it leaves time in the mail for it to get to them. Mm. And and you mentioned this heat sealer that you make it waterproof. Could could you tell more? I haven't seen this before. Oh yeah. So um it's just a, it's actually an industrial product. They use it to package, you know, things that you might buy in plastic. So it just um, provides a plastic casing that's sealed around the ActivePal device. So it's actually quite nice in a couple of ways. One is that it waterproofs the device so they can wear it 24 hours a day, including bathing, showering. And, um, and that's much easier for our participants rather than having them take it off and on every time they shower or go to sleep or something. And so that makes it just much more seamless for participants. And the other benefit of it is that when we get the devices back, all you have to do is cut off the plastic, which is very easy to snip off. And the device inside is clean and untouched and sanitary. And so um, it makes uh, it's making us feel a lot better about doing this remote assessment during a virus pandemic because uh, one of our participants' concerns, I'm sure, will just be, you know, are you, am I touching things that are safe and putting things on my skin that are safe? And so it's actually very hygienic and it's just been a wonderful approach. And you can get heat sealers online. Um, and they're, you know, I don't know, a couple hundred dollars or something on on the order of that U.S. Um, so they're not super expensive, and it's definitely worth um, worth doing. It just makes the whole process a lot easier for people. Hmm. I I need to look into it. It looks looks like a good solution. So you have been doing with the wristband that is reminding you are measuring the accurate data with ActivePal. What would you see as an ideal future device for elderly people for activity tracking and sedentary behavior, decreasing sedentary behavior? So that is such a great question and something I have been thinking about for over a decade. Um, so I would, I think one of the, the major barriers in this field of research is that we don't have a real-time measure of sitting behavior. So our, we actually, in one of our pilot studies, we did a focus group with our participants where we asked them all about different devices they would want to help them track their sedentary behavior. 
And we asked them actually at the end to draw us a picture of what their ideal device would look like. And it was just, it was, it was really neat because our participants really recognized how much they would love to be able to wear a device all the time that told them how much sitting they were doing, how many sit to stand transitions they were doing. And, you know, it's just a huge problem for our intervention research that we don't have a, what I call a sitometer, you know, so a game changer in physical activity interventions was having a pedometer where people could really easily understand and grasp how much physical activity they were doing. And we don't have the same in our sedentary behavior research realm. And I, you know, the University of Washington has a fantastic engineering department. And I've gone there and I've said, can you guys make this device for me? And, uh, and I haven't had any luck. Uh, I've knocked on several doors and haven't had a lot of luck with, um, with ideas around how this could technologically happen. And so I, I think it's a big problem for our field. Um, you know, I don't think people are going to be willing to wear something on their thigh for long, long periods of time. Um, and so it's it's not an ideal location, the, the current devices we have. People want a wrist-worn device, frankly. So in our um, focus groups around technology, they really wanted a wrist-worn device that very clearly told them how much sitting, how much standing, and how much physical activity they were doing. And, uh, you know, it seems so simple and yet is, is one of the big problems, I think, plaguing this research. You know, it's much harder for people to make little adjustments throughout their day to compensate for, oh, you know, today... I'm sitting more than normal and I can see it on this device. Um, and so it's it's just a huge problem and something that I've really been hoping we would come up with better solutions for. And yet it's still just a big, you know, outstanding issue, I think, in our field. Mm, yeah, you are making a good point. So this sitometer, what features should it have? It should just measure with with quite accurately the sitting and give feedback on a daily basis or moment by moment? Should it have something else or would it be just like that? That's a great question. Um, so in the study that we did, people really wanted to know their sitting time, their standing time, um, and how many sit-to-stand transitions they had taken. Uh, one of the things I've thought about, though, uh, so one of the measures in our epidemiologic work that seems to really strongly be related to health outcomes in older adults is mean bout duration, which is just the average length of sitting bouts throughout the day. And that's a newer metric that I've worked with just the past few years, and we hadn't included it in the feedback charts that we had given people in our pilot studies. So we didn't get any feedback on that specific metric. But I think something to the effect of, you know, today on average so far, your sitting bouts have been this long um, would be really interesting to think about having as well. Um, and so, you know, we know for older adults just engaging their lower extremity 
by doing that sit to stand transition is is really important to help them functionally age well you know and so one of the the major outcomes that we're looking at in my epidemiologic work and in this intervention trial is physical function and we know that it's huge for older adults. Having good physical function helps you maintain your independence, which is the number one thing older adults want as they get older and older. And uh, and so and you know we w- there's some evidence from epidemiologic work that sedentary behavior is associated with physical function. And in our initial pre-post-test pilot study where we did our first intervention of reducing sedentary behavior, we found improvements in gait speed and chair stands, which are two of the main um, outcome measures of physical function. We did not replicate that effect, though, in our randomized control trial pilot of, of 60 older adults. Um, and so we're, it's still not clear through the intervention research uh, whether, you know, if you actually intervene on sedentary behavior, can you impact physical function? And it, may, it might be the case that there's some reverse causality happening in the epidemiologic literature where, in, in fact, it's that um, people with lower physical function, that, that physical function is, is actually more of a predictor of sedentary behavior then that sedentary behavior is a predictor of physical function. And we're actually going to be able to tease that out in this ACT cohort study that I'm that um, that we have where we're collecting active pal and actograph measures, and we've got physical function measures going back 25 years. So it, it sets us up nicely to, to better examine that question. But um, now I've lost uh, what your initial question was, but I hope I answered your question. I, I don't remember it either, but it was all very <laughs> interesting, so don't worry about it. This podcast is sponsored by Fibion. Uh, my name is Dr. Paul Batman, and I'd like to just say a few words about Fibion. Um, I've used it a number of times on different projects that I've been involved in and find that it's incredibly reliable, very valid, and incredibly sturdy. I love the graphics that come with it. It really is very clear and can easily see the active in and active periods as well. So I'd certainly recommend Fibion to anyone that's interested in finding out more about sedentary behaviour, particularly the concept of sitting and how we can possibly break it up with some really good, valid information. It's just, just what came to my mind when you were talking that do you think like even even I'm feeling like when I'm long time sedentary, I feel that my body is is stiff and it's it's more difficult to do tasks afterwards. Do you think this is a factor with the older people that actually when they don't have too long sedentary behavior, they are active throughout the day, that it's actually just that kind of their acute functionality is better for the daily tasks? Yes. Yes, that's a great question. So we we do think that's the case. So we, uh, in our pilot studies, we asked people what what their perceptions were of how sedentary behavior impacted their health. And one of the things they reported is less stiffness and less pain. And so we do think that um, moving more regularly throughout the day can be a way potentially 
to kind of, you know, support a lot of our older participants have like osteoarthritis in their back or hips or knees. And, um, and we think that this approach can help them. On the other hand, they also report that if they stand for too long, it, it also can be a problem. And that for some of our older adult participants, moving around, even if it's slowly or little bit by little bit, um, feels better than standing. So we always encourage people, do what feels good to you. You know, if you can't stand for long periods of time, that that is totally fine. And that's where our health coaching is actually quite helpful because we really can personalize with people uh, what kind of works best for them. But we absolutely do find that. And I haven't necessarily, we haven't been measuring stiffness in our questionnaires, but now that you say that, I'm, I'm wishing that we would. We have been measuring pain and we're, we're, and we're measuring pain in our epidemiologic work as well. So we're hoping to dig more into that data. We haven't seen a lot with pain because our older adults overall end up reporting pretty low pain levels, even though they um, do have a lot of, you know, what we would think of as pain uh, related conditions. And so we haven't, there hasn't been enough variability in that measure to see a lot of change. But they definitely report qualitatively that um, their stiffness and their pain is better with the intervention and that they really like that approach of it it almost um, one way that we phrase it for people that do have pain issues is around pacing, you know, pace yourself so that throughout the day you're doing little bits of activity and standing and mixing things up all day long. And that's really a concept from the pain literature that we've kind of borrowed and applied um, to more broadly in our studies. And it's been a really helpful concept for folks to help them understand the idea of, you know, small bits of movement all day. And so, you know, in our current study, we're doing a little bit more to get people thinking about a whole day approach. And thinking a little bit more about, you know, making sure they're doing things in the morning, midday, and in the evening to um, to meet their goals and to be standing more and moving more. And so that's, I think, helpful for, for people. We also, um, this is pivoting topics a little bit, but something I just want to mention is that right. in our newer work, we're trying to think too about the role of sleep in all of this. So we um, have ended up in our population, sleep problems are really high. So the majority of older adults will tell you that they have problems with their sleep. And, uh, and because we're working with a population that also has um, obesity, there's a lot of sleep apnea and just a lot of sleep disorders. And we, we know that, you know, from our qualitative data, we know that when when people aren't sleeping well, when they're more fatigued and more tired, it's much harder for them to take their breaks from sitting. And it's much harder to be active. And so we're also trying to help them think a little bit more about their sleep and how what they can do to um, improve their sleep as a way to help them sit less, actually, and move more. And in our epidemiologic work in the ACT study, 
we're also trying to look at dot, uh, look at kind of physical activity, sedentary behavior, and sleep altogether, and really understand how these behaviors are all related. And so I think thinking more about that 24-hour activity cycle going forward will be really important work to do and, and seems to make a lot of sense from the qualitative work we've been doing. Mm. And I think there's quite a bit of evidence that when you are doing physical activity exercise as, as such, your sleep quality will be better. Have you seen any studies showing that less, uh, less sedentary behavior results in a better sleep or more sleep? That is a great question. And um, I haven't seen a lot of literature on that. You know, I don't think there's a ton out there. In our own work, we did include um, a measure of sleep quality in our pilot randomized control trial. And we did not see any changes in sleep quality. Um, But again, you know, it's really interesting because older adults report to us a lot of sleep problems. You know, they're, they report that to their health coaches. They report it qualitatively. But then on, on our measures of sleep quality, they actually look like their sleep quality is pretty normal. And we don't see a lot of variability. And so uh, it's kind of, you know, it's been a little bit trickier to to tease out, you know, maybe the people who volunteer for studies are the people who in this population who maybe have a little bit better sleep um, than the general older adult population. I don't really know. But um, we're continuing to dig into that issue. And in our epidemiologic work, um, we we have data where um, we've got sleep quality measures and the Actipal and Actigraph measures. And um, one of the paper ideas that that we haven't gotten to yet, but that we definitely will be looking at is whether sleep is associated with sedentary behaviors in kind of this large cohort. We have about a thousand older adults who've worn Actipal and Actigraph at baseline, and we're now collecting our follow-up data, our two-year follow-up data. Um, and hopefully, if we continue getting funding, we'll keep collecting that data every two years. And we're actually hoping to add a an, a, a device that measures sleep, so that we'll have um, we'll do just the Actipal and, and a sleep watch. So we'll get really good measures of sleep, hopefully, in the future and be able to look in this larger population at, at these um, interrelations. Mm. And and when you say sleep, what's, what kind of device you are referencing to? The the one that we're proposing to add is um, it's the Philips Respironic um, Sleep Watch. And that is a wrist-worn device, um, so it's pretty easy for people to wear and gives us really good data on metrics of sleep quality and sleep duration and also circadian rhythms. And so if we're able to add that to our ACT cohort, we'll have a lot of fascinating data, I think. And and basically, this Philips device, it's measuring the sleep quality from the acceleration or lack of accelerations on the wrist. Am I right? 
I think so. So I've partnered with someone who's who's like a sleep expert on this work since it's not um, I'm definitely I'm learning, but I'm definitely not an expert. But my understanding is that it um, it probably I'm guessing uses heart rate and um, as well as accelerations to understand sleep patterns. That is my understanding, but I'm I'm not exact. It it may have other measures that it uses as well. I'm not sure. Mm, yeah, I think I think usually the the main main variable is is the wrist accelerations and that makes and sense. I think it's, yeah, I think it's quite questionable what parts of sleep it's actually measuring well. I think when you are kind of paralyzed, your muscles are paralyzed in the deep sleep. That's quite easy to measure correctly because you cannot actually move. But the other stages, I think the validations show that it's not really too accurate. But I think it's it's probably best you can get in the field conditions. Yes. And, you know, it has been tested against polysomnography. And, and these devices are kind of the most valid devices out there. They don't, though, to my understanding, they don't necessarily... Um, they, they're really good at measures of kind of sleep efficiency and total time asleep and, um, and those kinds of indicators. And maybe I think you're right, less accurate for exact stages that people are in. Mm. Have you, have you heard of a device called dream? I think it's no. D-R-E-E-M. It's a, I, I just saw the device. I haven't used it myself. It's a headband, quite quite neatly designed. You put it put it on your head. It kind of adapts the size. It's it fits one size fits all. And I think it's measuring EEG, couple of channels. It's also measuring the eye movement. And I'm not sure, maybe the heart rate also. So oh, I think that's something you might want to check. I think it's probably quite expensive, but but also quite practical and probably more accurate than than the other devices. And it, the design is very nice. It it I tried it on myself, uh, not doing a measurement, but just tested it, and it it fits quite nicely. Of course, oh, when you put something something on your head and your head is on the pillow. I think it might affect your sleep sleep quality, which is not a good thing if you want to. <laughs> right. Yeah, and I wanted to ask about your your other study with the dementia. Uh, so, what kind of hypothesis you have in this study? So. That in that study, um, we have really good measures of cognitive function and physical function. So most of our hypotheses are around, you know, how sitting behaviors and patterns of sitting, as well as physical activity, uh, relate to physical and cognitive function over time. So, um, so we're looking at, uh, you know. We're, we're kind of accruing follow-up from our baseline assessments right now. And our hypotheses are, you know, I think a lot of uh, studies that have been done have, have shown that physical function is associated with, with physical function, um, although not quite as many longitudinal studies. 
But there are very few studies looking at whether sedentary behaviors are associated with cognitive function over time. And the data, I think, are kind of mixed. There are some studies that don't show any associations, and there is at least one perspective study that does show that sedentary behavior is predictive of cognitive function. But in our cross-sectional baseline data, um, what we're seeing is not a lot of associations between different patterns and sedentary behavior durations and our measure of cognitive function. Although um, the measure of cognitive function is is kind of a screener. Um, It's called the Cognitive Assessment Screening Instrument, the CASI, and it's really a screener for dementia. And so it's not like a very detailed measure of, of any particular component of cognition, but we're not seeing a lot at baseline. Um, but we are seeing associations between physical activity and cognitive function and physical function. So the associations there seem a little bit stronger. And then what we don't know and what we're going to start looking at is whether all of our historical you know, trajectories of physical function are associated with sedentary behavior and physical activity, and same with cognitive function. And so I think it'll be really interesting to dig into that data to try to kind of get at the bidirectional associations between all of the, these behaviors and these um, outcomes. Well, what we typically think of as outcomes, but here we'd be using them as predictors of behavior. And so, um, you know, the hypotheses are, are generally that more physical activity and less sedentary behavior, um, that each of those independently would be associated with, with cognitive and physical function. Um, but, it's, but it's yet to be seen. Um, and so we're starting to dig into that data. We held a big um, symposium at the Gerontological Society of America meetings which were in Austin, Texas in November. So we did a whole session on this ACT data and really digging into some of the baseline associations with our ActivePal and ActiGraph data. And it was really a a fun session. We had a lot of interest in the data and a lot of good conversation around what we do expect to see. Um, but what we what we also are seeing is just that sedentary behavior is really high in older adults when you measure it with a thigh worn device. Um, so it it's actually a little bit higher than um, in there was a study where they pooled prevalence data on sedentary behavior and kind of came up with this number that older adults engage in nine point four hours per day of sedentary behavior across studies. But in this mm-hmm. ACT cohort of people over 65, so we have people into their 90s. Um, so it's kind of, we include the oldest old. Our average sitting time from active power is 10.2 hours per day. And so it's, um, it's very high uh, and much higher among people over 85, which we have a, a number of people over 85 in that cohort. And much higher among people with health conditions and frailty. And so the data, just the descriptive data, I think are really interesting. Um, and hopefully some of that, uh, we're trying to crank out a lot of publications in the next year. So hopefully, um, you know, some of the proceedings of that symposia that we did will be coming out. 
and people can learn more about that study. Um, we have a lot of data. You know, these folks are in a healthcare system, so we've got all of their electronic medical record data in addition to all of the data we collect every two years. So it's uh, a really unique sample, and um, we're excited to dig in more. This podcast is sponsored by Fibian. My name is uh, Terje Jövåg. I'm associate professor at Oslo Metropolitan University. Currently, I'm using Fibion in a project where we investigate activities of daily life in people with uh, lower limb amputation. My impression is that Fibion is easy to implement in this project. It's easy to use and it's also simple to upload and analyze the data. Mm, yeah, sounds really interesting. So you said that the average is over 10 hours and that the older people and frail people are, are sitting more. How much do you see, for example, over 80 year old that what is the average for them and what are the highest values you have, have measured for sitting time? Oh, that's a good question. Um, off the top of my head, I can't quite remember exactly I think the the group of folks over 85 were more in the upper 10 hour per day uh, category. Um, you know, it was something like 10.8 hours per day, close to 11 hours per day. Um, and then people, you know, with um, health conditions like obesity and um, hypertension and CVD had had higher sedentary behaviors. And then people with frailty um, also had much higher sedentary behavior. I think, again, close to, you know, 10.8 hours per day or something on that order. Um, but don't quote me. Um, I have a lot of numbers floating around in my head, and uh, and I'm not always good at recalling them. But um, But yeah, so we're seeing some really interesting patterns there. Yeah. And and how do you see now with the coronavirus pandemic, the the self-isolation of risk groups probably continues for quite a long time. People are probably quite sedentary. How big health effects you you estimate to see that if, for example, people need to stay on some sort of isolation for one and a half years or two years, how how bad the situation can be? On as far as behaviors go, yeah, like w- how how the behaviors go and what kind of things this could could cause in the health health outcomes. Yeah, so um, I think you know social isolation we know um, is associated with depression in older adults, and so I think what we likely are going to see is is increased depression. Um, higher stress, even worse sleep. So they already struggle with their sleep. And then I think a lot of folks are struggling with their sleep given just the background anxiety of, of what's happening. Um, it's really hard for people. So, um, and then, you know, of course, those those things all have an effect on physical activity and sedentary behavior and you know, just thinking about people in Seattle as well as most cities across the world, um, we 
have rough winters in the sense that they're dreary here and they're they're it's colder and it's very wet. Um, we sometimes get snow and ice, and so people become even more confined to their home. And if they can't get outside and see nature and exercise and see their neighbors, that could add additional stress as we head back into the winter. So I know I'm thinking ahead of things, but I think this likely will go through next winter. And I, I'm very concerned about our um, older adults. And the good news, I think, is that, you know, our, we are developing interventions that, um, that we can remotely coach people and give them brief interventions for, for depression and social isolation and help them connect as much as they can and help them improve their mood as much as possible. Um, and the other big thing I think is, you know, when older adults are more depressed, when they're more tired, their cognition suffers. And so we could see an uptick in, in our ACT cohort of people screening positive for, um, for dementia potentially and mild cognitive impairment. And so that's really concerning. Um, and so, you know, I think, um, it's it's going to be a tough time for our older adults. And, um, you know, there's another study that I haven't mentioned that I'm part of where we're trying to prevent cognitive decline in older adults by doing primarily remote coaching around a bunch of different risk factors that older adults have for dementia, including depression, sleep, social isolation, physical activity, and cognitive activity. and I think that intervention um, could be really helpful for people right now because there are these brief therapeutic strategies that we can teach older adults, like problem-solving therapy is a great one. Um, and we can deliver that remotely and we can do behavioral activation. And, you know, there's a bunch of techniques that we have um, that that we can get out there to people and try to reach our older population. I think, you know, we're lucky to have the technology support that we have right now, and yet we don't want to leave older adults behind or populations that that you know, like low SES populations that may not have access to the internet. We don't want to leave those populations behind. And so I think that that these approaches that can do brief phone coaching could be really valuable and kind of get around some of those technology barriers. So I'm hopeful that there are things we can do to help people. And it seems like we need like rapid scale up of of those approaches. And, um, you know, I almost feel bad not using my clinical skills right now because I I feel like there's such a, a big need for um for therapy and all of my friends who are psychologists and therapists right now are so busy, you know, and, and luckily they're able to do all of their work through telemedicine, which is fantastic. So, you know, people can still get connected to services. Kaiser has some great resources for its patients, um, which we're trying to tell people about in our studies so that they can get connected to more intensive therapy if need be. Um, but that only applies to people in our studies. So I, I really feel for people who are less connected to those things. 
but I, I know our delivery system is thinking about ways to reach out to people and make sure people feel like they have resources. So, you know, there's a lot that we as researchers, I think, can do right now. And it feels like important work. Those of us working in, in this space that, that are listening to your podcast, you know, we have a lot to offer right now. And I hope that we can be of help. Mm. So you have you have really good intervention, you have reminder strategies and many good things. What kind of parties you would need to collaboration that this would be get in the wider use for this this pandemic to help the risk groups? That's a great question and I'm not I'm not totally sure, but you have me thinking more about that. Um You know, like in my mind, I'm almost thinking of how can I reach out to the delivery system that I work in and let them know, you know, there's more we can do to support this older adult population. Um, I do think right now, a lot of my um, colleagues, you know, I think people are still really hopeful and clinging to the idea that maybe this will be a shorter term thing. Um, And I, you know, I personally am am um, a very much a realist, and so I see this going on for quite some time. And I don't think we're going to be able to see older adults in person for quite a while. Um, but I think your question and this our discussion is making me think I I need to do more to offer. I think as researchers we get so busy and caught up in in our worlds of of our studies and what we're doing. We have plenty of work to keep us busy, um, and yet that feels a little bit insufficient given what's happening to our society. And I, I would love if anybody has ideas for what we can all do as a community to offer our services and make sure that our interventions are put into action. Um, I think it would be great to have more dialogue about that, about what we can all do to help. Mm. So hopefully some people listening this, maybe if you have an idea about collaboration, please be in contact with, with Dory. I think there's a really good good chance for a collaboration, really good need for it. And yes. is there and, something? You know, I'll just add yeah, that, please. I'll just, sorry, really quickly, I'll add that um, there's been a lot going around. Um, people are sharing COVID-related surveys, which has been really helpful, and I appreciate that. So a lot of us are adding questions to our existing surveys to ask more about the effects of COVID and the pandemic in their life. And so that's been one great collaboration that I feel like is happening, but maybe less on the side of, you know, how do we scale up some of our interventions more rapidly so that we can actually, you know, get people help. And of course, that um, that always leads to a funding conversation, which is always the tricky part of what we're doing. But I think many of us are hopeful that at least here in the US, the NIH will have more funding uh, mechanisms for us to spread that work around. Mm. And and before we finish, is there something you would like to promote, uh, a book chapter, your Twitter, your employer, or anything? Now is the chance if you want to promote <laughs> something. I don't think so. Uh, I'm a I'm a bad self promoter. Um, 
you know, I'm I'm on Twitter and I I always look forward to to reading the conversation that's going on. Um, you know, I just really appreciate your podcast. I think it's so helpful given what's going on right now. You know, the fact that I just found out this morning that the International Society for Physical Activity and Health, um, the meeting was supposed to be in October in Vancouver, BC, and that has been postponed. And so as, you know, everything is getting postponed, um, your podcast is really a place where we can keep the dialogue going and learn about each other's work. And so I actually just really appreciate the opportunity to to be on it and um and thank you for the work you're doing it's it's i've i've uh have a fledgling podcast of my own that i'm working on and it's no easy feat um so i'll put in a plug for that so that's a um podcast with dr jacqueline kerr who was formerly at uc mm-hmm. san diego uh, many of you know and and love jacqueline and she has been one of my uh, colleagues and mentors um, since graduate school when we worked with Jim Salas together in San Diego. And um, Jacqueline and I, you know, in our we've done a bunch of physical activity trials and older adults together. And we've just loved hearing the stories. Older people have such great insights for coping with life and um, and so we actually did this podcast. It's not so much a research podcast, but more out of a passion for, you know, helping particularly older women spread their stories um, because it's a population where we're not good at self-promoting. And um, we're, you know, we seem to struggle to think that we have something to offer that people could learn from. And so we're trying to really spread older women's stories really as an effort to help those of us that are younger women that are, you know, struggling in academia and in life and to balance, quote unquote, family and work and everything else. And so right now the podcast is called The Women Behind the Wrinkles and it's available on iTunes. Um, but we're probably changing the title because while we younger women loved that title, uh, a lot of the older women that we've been interviewing really don't like it um, and have a lot of reactions to the word wrinkles. And so um, it might be changing, but but be on the lookout for that. It's been a really fun kind of passion project. And, um, and it's been a chance for Jacqueline and I, you know, Jacqueline... Um, is no longer at UC San Diego and she um, has her own business right now. So her transformation has been really quite fascinating. And then I've had a big transformation. Um, For those of you that don't know, I had a double lung transplant three and a half years ago. And so I, um, you know, I've been through a lot and wasn't able to work for a year. And so it's been a really neat way to kind of um, work through things together. And, um, and it's been, I just love having a, a project still with Jacqueline because she's so knowledgeable and just a, a fantastic researcher. And so that's one thing. Um, and then, uh, you know, otherwise, you know, I really just wanted to get out the word about the studies that we're doing that haven't been published yet. So the um, adult changes in thought study where we're collecting all of this activity monitoring data 
and that's in partnership with Dr. Andrea LaCroix at UC San Diego. And, uh, and then also my uh, large trial funded by NIH, where we're reducing sedentary behavior. And hopefully both of these studies will have publications forthcoming. But now I think another interesting thing that we all have to grapple with is how do we write the, the pandemic into our papers? You know, and so we're working on the protocol paper for my large trial. And now, you know, all of our procedures have been disrupted. And so as researchers, how do we how do we write about that? You know, and how do we write a protocol paper where our protocol is taking a huge zigzag? So that's yeah. been really interesting. Um, but yes, I, I uh, those are the few things I can offer for now. Yeah, no, no, sounds sounds good, and I think your podcast is important. So maybe the name is changing, but look for Dory, Dory, and you will probably find it. I think it sounds like an important podcast, as as there's quite a lot of, for example, burnout among the young women in in the academia. So I think it can help a lot to have exactly. the stories of older older people. Yeah, and I think that's. That's really the mental health problems. That's something that should be really stressed and and taken done research with. I I know so many many researchers that have burnout, and it's it's quite horrible. It is. It's really hard, and you know we have a stressful job. And I think you know one of the good things that the kind of I always think about silver linings when things don't go your way like obviously I had to deal with that around my transplant but one of the silver linings is you know just reconnecting to our daily lives and how we have so many important things in our lives that have nothing to do with work um and that our work um we're actually really lucky to do such meaningful work and to get to choose what we study and and choose what we do. And, um, and I've learned so much from my research participants. And I have to say that, you know, we as human beings are very resilient, and we'll get through this. And also older adults, they've been through so much in their lives, they're so resilient. And many of them are actually doing really well right now. So it's, I think that they do have a lot to teach us. And, um, you know, one of the silver linings of all of this is just reconnecting with what's important to us and just making sure we're living in valued ways um, and that every day we get to do something that feels really good. Um, so that's what I'm striving for, you know, in my mantra of control, what you can accept, what you can't um, is just, you know, trying to appreciate the small joys that I have in everyday life. Um, and I've learned that a lot from the older adults that I've worked with. So they're, they're a great population. And, and I've, I've really loved, um, this research career and look forward to seeing what the studies I'm working on now have to hold and offer. Thanks for joining us this week on physical activity researcher podcast. If you like the show, make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing or following the show on Twitter. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Thank you for your support. 
If you found value in the show, we would really appreciate a rating on Apple Podcast or whichever app you use. Or if you would, in a real old school way, simply tell a friend about the show. It would be a great help for us. We have a fantastic lineup of guests for forthcoming episodes, so be sure to tune in. Thank you all for your support and have a great day. This podcast is sponsored by Fibian. Get scientific validation and learn more about Fibian at fibian.com slash research. The Physical Activity Researcher podcast has created an activity tracker purchase guide for researchers. Get your free copy from the link in the podcast description. Thank you for listening to the Physical Activity Researcher podcast.